am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you jealous of my generosity? Amen. Be seated. Morning, Lorinda. It's good to see you. Good morning, everybody. It's great to be back. This place is starting to feel like a home away from home. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. This last week, I was in a retreat at our diocesan center with the Stillpoint Board, doing some brainstorming for the upcoming months and what direction that we wanted to take. And show of hands, how many people are familiar or have heard of Stillpoint? I see a few hands. So Stillpoint is actually 40 years old. It was started in the Episcopal Church here in Santa Barbara. And um, we've had a strong connection with uh, the LA Diocese for a number of years, but that started to wane, has waned a little bit. Um, COVID, and you can blame a lot of different things for that. So we're trying to figure out what we can do to reconnect with uh, the Episcopal community here in Santa Barbara County. And to that end, we had um, Bishop John join us Monday morning for about an hour to brainstorm some ideas on how that might happen. Bishop John said towards the end of our time together something that really connected with me. Bishop John said, we must learn to not stay on the surface. If the church continues to stay on the surface, the church will not survive. And that reminds me of the Martin Luther King quote that I'm sure many of you have already heard. It's uh, something dear to me. He said that we must live together as brothers and sisters or we will perish together as fools. So when I asked Bishop John if I could quote him, his answer for me spoke volumes. He said, he texted me, of course you can, but quite frankly, he went on to say, although I am probably as guilty as any. And that self-awareness and vulnerability coming from our bishop is something that I absolutely love. And it's one of the reasons why Kathy and I got ordained together. Time flies. It's two years. My goodness. And they said it wouldn't last. (laughs) Um, So... Um, part of our vows is to profess obedience to the bishop. We actually have a direct line to the bishop, and we have a dotted line to the rector or the vicar of whatever church parish we happen to be serving in. And um, as a part of that vow, we vow obedience to the bishop. And being the old hippie that I am, I'm not a big fan of vowing obedience to anybody, for that matter, with the possible exception of my wife, Dawn, okay. Um, and, uh, but with John um, and the vulnerability and the authenticity that he seems to have, I'm ready to follow him to the gates of hell, kind of a thing, because vulnerability is the thing, is the way that we connect with each other. So to dur- turning to today's gospel reading, 
It turns out it's one of three unique parables to Matthew. And by the way, Matthew is not just the name of one of the disciples who was probably the tax collector. Matthew also comes from the same root where we get the verb, uh, we get the noun disciple or to disciple somebody. And it simply means a follower or an adherent of a teacher and a mentor. Three of these parables, there's about 20 in Matthew, and three of them are unique to Matthew. And they all focus on the same theme of how the economy of grace, so join me here, the economy of grace turns out to be, for want of a better word, gratuitous. The economy of grace happens to be gratuitous. So last week we heard about the unforgiving servant who did not forgive us as he had been forgiven. He took the grace he had been offered, which he did not deserve, and didn't bother to pass that blessing on. Next week, we're going to hear about the mother of John and James wants them to be seated at the right hand and the left of Jesus when he comes into his kingdom because of their faithful status as disciples and followers of Jesus. And needless to say, you're going to hear about how the other ten disciples didn't particularly appreciate that. And today, we have this audacious notion that the ones who only worked for an hour get paid as much as the ones who worked all day. Five groups of workers were hired, one early in the morning, some early in the morning at the break of day. It reminds me of a song someplace. 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m., and 5 p.m. And last but not least, the ones who got hired at 5 got paid the same amount. Now, I don't know about you, but that strikes me as unfair. And it just doesn't feel right. And if I had been one of the first to be hired on that particular day 2,000 years ago and found out that everybody got paid the same amount, I would have gone to my labor board of the day and claimed discrimination. This wasn't fair. So clearly, God's sense of fairness is different from ours. In fact, God not only supports equal pay for equal work, and sadly we're still working on that, although that's been a law since 1963, God seems to believe that the marginalized should, be an, should get an extra compensation as a break for the fact that they are indeed marginalized. They have a least of these kind of a status. And where is there a reference to marginalized workers being hired in this passage? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because where it is, is that um, the vineyard, the Lord of the vineyard, comes back at five in the afternoon, sees some people still standing around, and he says, why are you standing here idle all day? Little accusation in that. What's going on here? How come you guys are still standing around? Their reply because no one hired us. Because no one hired us. Turns out, you know, first impressions can be wrong. They're not standing around because they were being lazy. They're, they're standing around, they're not, they might be standing around because they're old and infirm. They could not, maybe they didn't speak Aramaic. Um, 
Maybe they smelled because they didn't have any place to take a shower. Whatever their condition, the vineyard owner had compassion on them, put them to work, and then paid them a whole day's wage for one hour of work. So those of us who grew up with white privilege and a sense of self-entitlement have a tendency to judge others harshly if they don't appear to be living up to our righteous standards. We like to claim that we deserve everything that we got because we worked hard all of our lives for a living. We pulled our, are, did you grow up with this phrase? We pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Anybody know that phrase that mom and dad used with us growing up? And the same opportunity we assume exists for everyone, regardless of class, race, gender, or economic status. Sound familiar? A white woman of privilege went out on a rant when a Hispanic construction worker told her here in Santa Barbara that she was trespassing. And according to the Santa Barbara Independent, the video of the incident went viral, maybe some of you saw it, and protesters closed down the corner of Mitchell Terrena and Garden Street last Sunday night, bringing this to newsworthy visibility. A construction worker just doing his job was berated by the lady. According to her, he did not belong in their neighborhood. And just before she slapped his phone out of his hand, she argued, I live here. I'm an American. You're from Tijuana. Was this woman in the wrong? Yes. Yes, she was. Are you and I in the wrong when we rush to judgment because some homeless person is unkempt, dirty, and perhaps belligerent? And we cross to the other side of the street because we don't want to deal with that? Yeah. Yeah. We're not following God's economy of grace in that moment when we do that. But I have to tell you, somehow the story still seems unfair for the ones who worked all day. And so my friend Norma weighed in on that. She says that when she was raising her kids, she would always remind them that when they complained about the unfairness of life, she would just opine, life is not fair, life just is. And like the workers who felt that they had been treated unfairly, I've done my own fair share of blaming God for the unfairness of life. But the vineyard owner's response in this parable has made me pause long enough to consider the possibility that my real complaint all along has simply been that I am jealous of how God is treating other people. From my self-centered perspective, God is treating them better than me by giving them more grace than she's been giving to me. I need a little reminder that grace is not given based on merit. As Paul would say, lest we be given, we assume that righteousness is the result of our works. 
But back in my evangelical days, we used to love to sit around and boast about who had the best answered prayer story. One night, a pastor brought us all up short by saying in response to our stories, and pause here for a second, because you'll see the contradictory notion of thinking that my grace is earned. He just said, wow, Jesus must love you more than he loves me. Have you ever felt that way when you're hearing a great story? Oh, wow, Jesus must love you more than he loves me. No, Jesus doesn't. When I was in Roar's Living School back in 2016, Jim Finley shared this statement with my cohort. He said, if we are absolutely grounded in the absolute love of God that protects us from nothing, even as it sustains us in all things, then we can face all things with courage and tenderness and touch the hurting places in others and in ourselves with love. protects us from nothing while sustaining us in everything. Afterwards, we had a chance to submit questions, and mine was simply, a God that protects us from nothing? Bummer. That was all I wrote. And yes, there was a little bit of sprinkle of laughter throughout the room when they heard that. But Jim did not smile. He didn't grimace, but he just didn't smile. He proceeded to explain what had led him to that conclusion in his own life. And if you read his memoir, which came out a few months ago, maybe a year ago now, I'm losing track of time, it's called The Healing Path, you will see that his childhood was horrific. But he always felt like God was close by, sustaining him. He ended his answer with this. Just remember, tonight in Albuquerque, a little boy and a little girl are going to bed, having just been mistreated or sexually abused by a parent or a family member. Just remember. I have to tell you that I broke down and I cried. I actually sobbed. I mean big, ugly, messy sobs. I realized I was convicted by how shallow my understanding of God had become. Quote Bishop John, I was living on the surface and I had to go deeper. In the First Nations version of the New Testament, in between verse 15, which I started us off with today, and the last verse of today's reading, the editors of the First Nations version write parenthetically in between those two verses. Creator sets free, which happens to be their name for Jesus. That's how they translate Jesus. Creator sets free, lets his followers think about the story for a moment. And I hope we get to do that today, too, is just take a moment to think about the story. And then we read verse 16. So the last will be first, 
and the first will be last. Jesus did not impose Christendom like the imperial system his followers were expecting. Every description he offered of God's reign of love, relationship, non-judgment, and forgiveness, where the last shall be first and the first shall be last, suggests that we are being called to live in a manner worthy of the good news of grace, full of compassion and kindness. First and last has to do with not so much how long we've been working and more to do with whether or not we are living in accordance with the rules of privilege and status or are living in accordance with the economy of God's generosity. We know from Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, that God lets the rain fall on the good and the bad. God lets the rain fall on the good and the bad. And that's a far cry from the economy of war, is it not? The prevailing sentiment in this country seems to be we should send cluster bombs to the Ukraine in their fight against Russia, raining death on the good and the bad. Lord, have mercy. We are exhorted in the Sermon on the Mount to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And the reason we are called by Jesus to do this is so that we can become the children of God. Radical grace, my friends, is the great equalizer. I suspect one of the reasons I am so drawn to prison ministry is because I get to see God, how God shows up in the lives of prisoners who have had absolutely remarkable, life-changing experiences of grace that turn their lives around. And if you want to hear one or two of those stories, maybe we can do that during coffee at the end of this service. But they are truly life-changing stories. When they had no place else to go, grace took them to a new place. You and I have a more difficult time finding that grace because of the privilege we've grown up with. But Sophia, who happens to be my nickname for the Holy Spirit, she whispered in my ear the other day when, as usual, yours truly, was whining about not getting as much grace as I thought I needed in order to do what I wanted to do. And she said this, you already have the grace you need to treat yourself and others with compassion and generosity. You just need to let go a little to connect with what I've already given you. Amen. So be it. Come and go.